music, all that stuff. It's already cranking out. I'm like, no, no, let's wait just a little bit. Uh, All right, well, let me pray, and we're going to jump into God's Word. Father God, thank you so much again for this morning. Uh, It truly is those words, that song, that uh, we want more of you, God. We truly want more of you. And we are so grateful that you desire to just uh, reveal yourself to us in so many wonderful and unique ways. So we pray, God, as we, as we look into your active and living word this morning, God, that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would know you more because of not what I have to say, but because of what your word has to say and how the Spirit of God uh, applies it to our lives, God. And, and then we uh, then uh, obey that. So Father God, thank you for this time and bless it in your son's name. Amen. Well, we all know the importance of the phrase, actions speak louder than words, right? You might have even said that to people, had someone say that to you before or something. Uh, For example, we know that uh, for parents, uh, parents know how important it is that to not only tell their children that they love them, but to also show them that they love them as well by doing certain things like being, by being physically and emotionally available or taking an interest in their world and the things that, that they're interested in and listening to them, really giving them a listening ear. For some, uh, even go even more with giving out the hugs and I love you and hug you and all that stuff. So we know how important it is to do more than just say we love you. For children uh, and really for anybody, wouldn't you say anybody, It's reality is actions speak louder than words. And this is especially, especially true when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, something that we are going to look at today. Actions speak louder than words today. So if you were here last week, last week we, you remember, we talked about the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, uh, these religious leaders, they were the religious leaders of Jesus's day, and they had come with three questions to Jesus that they were hoping to trap him into saying something that would incriminate him or discredit him and his message. And remember, we saw in response to these things, Jesus had a question of his own that really ended up completely silent them, and in the end revealed the true identity of the Messiah, that the Messiah was going to be more than who they thought was just going to be in the line of David, this conquering uh, warrior, that the Messiah was actually God. And so that silenced them. Remember, they leave, they're done. They, they don't, I mean, they want to leave. They don't have any, but it's, remember, it, it ends by saying they had nothing more to say. They couldn't bring anything more to him. Well, in this morning's passage, we're going to see that Jesus is not finished with these guys yet. Jesus is going to double down on these religious leaders. He proceeds really to spell out in a very painful and detailed way the fa- their failings. He's going to go right for it, Uh, both the failings in their personal obedience to God and in their role as teachers and leaders of God's people. You see, these guys were the ultimate, and we've seen this already, these guys were the ultimate legalists. They, their view was that adherence to the very letter of the law, the best I could do, if there's the rule, if I obey it, that's what's going to make me acceptable and righteous and have favor before God. If I do that, that's all I got to do. Okay, they were total legalists, yet they were also, and we're going to see here this word a lot today, they were also hypocrites and that they didn't practice the very things that they preach. Jesus will teach us today in today's passage that true godliness is determined by what we do, not just by what we say. True godliness is determined by what we do, not just by what we say, okay? We're going to this morning, believe it or not, we're going to look at the entirety of all of chapter 23. So I'll get you out of here just in time to go home and grab your food and get back for the uh, potluck thing tonight, okay? Just kidding. Um, so the first part of the section is verses 1 through 12, and this really speaks, this is where Jesus speaks to the crowd. He's going to talk to the crowd about the scribes and the Pharisees, okay? And the remainder of the chapter, he's going to speak directly to the scribes and to the Pharisees, where he really is going to chastise them for failing to live by and to teach God's word, the truth of God's word. So let's just dive right in. Let's start looking Matthew chapter uh, 23 by looking at the, uh, what, how he addresses the crowd. Look at verses uh, one through three. He says this, 
Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, remember this is after he had totally shut up these guys, had nothing more to say. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're right by him, they're around still, sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but do not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. In your other versions you've seen, he says, they practice, they, they don't practice what they preach. Now, to sit on Moses' seat, what that really means, this is a figurative expression for uh, teaching with divine authority, okay? That's what these guys, they say, we, we are in the line of Moses, so this is, we have, we have authority to teach. Yet here Jesus actually disputes their right to have an authoritative role. Okay? He says that their behavior and their teaching not matching their actions actually negates their authority. You guys don't have any authority anymore. You don't live up to have it, be able to have that. So Jesus says, don't be like them. Remember, these guys are still there. And he say, don't be like these guys. He's talking to the crowd. Don't be like these people. They don't practice what they preach. Now, on occasion, when they do tell the truth, when they actually teach the truth concerning revering God and respecting other people, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Can you imagine what they must have felt like? The, the, the scribes and Pharisees are standing, they're right there. They almost want, probably wanted to say, uh, Jesus, we're right here. We hear you talking about, we hear you bad-mouthing us. And he just goes right on and does that because they're not practicing what they preach. That's a really strong indictment. Really strong. Look now at verse 4 where Jesus, he's going to start specifically hitting some things there. Look how he, Jesus specifically assesses, first thing is their lack of sympathy. Okay, he's going to talk about their lack of sympathy. Just in verse 4 he says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Okay, so what Jesus is saying here, the problem is that these religious leaders are all about making sure people are following these tons of rules and regulations. Yet instead of these rules and regulations that they're so mandating them to do, they're not helping people draw closer to God. They're not helping them at all. People felt weighed down. You ever felt that way about something that you had to do, that you didn't want to do? It just, you knew you had to do it. You needed to do it, but you didn't want to do it. That's what was going on. That's how, this, that's how the religious leaders made people feel about a relationship with God. Under these religious leaders, religion had become more of a burden than a joyous, re- wonderful relationship with God. Remember we had talked about some of the Sabbath rules that they had? God had said, keep the Sabbath holy, because he wanted people to rest and enjoy life more, enjoy the rhythms of life and reflect on God more. But the religious leaders were all about, listen, if you spit on the ground, that's a sin, because when you spit, it made the mud mortar, and making mortar is work. You sinned. Hello? Can you stuff like that? It's just crazy. Oh, you picked the heads off of some wheat. Oh, and you, and you went like this and you ate it. Oh, you, you harvested. You worked, sinner. Can you see, you see how religion was a burden for people under these people? They just couldn't take it anymore. And, they weren't, and the other thing is they weren't willing to allow the slightest relaxation of these rules at all, even if it was actually choking out the joy of having a relationship with God. They're, nope, this is what must be done. Commentator William Barclay says this. He says, whenever religion becomes a depressing affair of burdens and prohibitions, it ceases to be true religion. Well, that's so great. So true. Is it? No, you don't do that. And isn't that so often what the world sees us as Christians as? We're a bunch of, you can't do that. Yo, yeah, you have to do this. You can't do that. And that's what we're all about. That's what we're all about. We're all about freedom and joy, but not getting caught up in the things that will entangle us too. That's a whole other sermon. We'll go there later. You see, what happened here, this was the, what, this, what Jesus is saying here, this showed that these religious leaders, they lacked, they lacked the sincerity and the sympathy towards other people. They didn't really care about other people. And this is something completely different than what Jesus said he came to offer. Now, if anybody was going to be able to help people understand what it meant to be religious and to follow God, it would be his son, right? (laughs) You would think. Look at what Jesus said 
back, we looked at this a while ago, what he said he came to do. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what it should feel like to be a follower of Jesus. Not, oh my gosh, what do I have to do now? Or what can't I do now? That's not it at all. That's the total wrong mindset. When we commit to follow Jesus, we are freed from the impossible burden of trying to earn God's favor. We're free from that. We don't have to earn his favor at all or earn our way into heaven. That's gone. That price was paid. That was taken care of. We don't have to worry that. A life of faith is much lighter than a life of self-righteousness, isn't it? Trying to be good, trying to pull myself, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that. Oh, I did it. I'm horrible. God must think I'm horrible. We're free from that. Totally free. That's what Jesus says. I love that. No matter where we are in our walk. Well, next Jesus goes on to address their, really their concern for appearances and reputation. Okay, this is a big one. They, their big concern for appearance and reputation. Look at verses 5 through 7. He says this, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad. Yeah, you all know what that is. No, kidding, you don't. And their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogue, and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. Remember, they're still here. They're, they're listening to this. See, Jesus has already addressed their hypocrisy back in chapter 6. Remember when he talked about being careful, we're, not, we're to be careful not to practice our righteousness just so other people can see, just so other people will notice. And this is what they did. Remember he talked about uh, giving to the needy without letting other people know, giving to the needy, look what I did. I gave to the fire victims. I'm so altruistic. You know, he said, no. Don't do that. And when you pray, don't pray like they do. Remember, they would go out and go, no, God. And they'd pray. No, go in your closet. Don't do it to be recognized. Okay? Well, now he's going to add to these with examples of clothing and social status. First, he mentions their phylacteries and their fringes. And I have a picture of their phylacteries and fringes. We talked about this once before back in the day. Uh, Phylacteries were these small leather boxes that contained key texts from the law that were to be worn on their foreheads, and on, that they wore on their foreheads and on their arms. Literally, what this was was to fulfill the commandments, the, the command to tie the commandments as symbols to your hands and to your forehead. Now, you don't necessarily have to do that, but this is what they decided to do that. And this is what they did back then, okay? They tied them on there so they would remember, so they would keep it in front. A very good thing to do. I don't know about you. My wife is really good about this. It's putting like Bible verses around the house. You know, that might be you know, putting truths around the house. So, you know, I'll be brushing my teeth and I'll go, oh, yeah, yeah I know I need to go that. You know, good, good stuff like that. And I remember when I was you know, used to be learning to memorize scripture, I'd put those little cards on my dashboard. I guess that was just as dangerous as texting today. But I would put these little, these little Bible verses on my dashboard, truths that I know I needed to know. Not because I had to, because I wanted to know that truth. So I put them on my dashboard so I could remember. They were reminders. That's what phylacteries were all about for them, to remind them. Okay? And what he's talking about, and you tie them up similarly, they were to wear tassels or these fringes on their garments. Now, these are just prayer shawls that these guys are wearing, because in modern days, it's pretty much that's the only place that they did uh, do it now. But back then, it was the fringes. Remember that the gal who was hemorrhaging back in the day, and Jesus was walking through the crowd, and she reached out and touched his garment? That's what he, she, she probably grabbed one of these fringes that were hanging, that were hanging off of his clothes because they were meant to help them to remember, to, uh, to think about God's commandments and not forget them. It was a reminder. Now, obviously what Jesus is saying here, some of these religious leaders had apparently made their phylacteries and tassels uh, much more conspicuous to get attention and say, look how religious I am. I don't know what it meant. Did they have this like big old box on their head? I don't know, fringes dragging for 10 feet behind them. Whatever they did, they were doing something for people can say, wow. 
that person, how pious they are, how close to God they must be because they don't just put a little bit, they put the, you know, the big old refrigerator box on their head. And Jesus is like, it's, they're not doing it because they love God anymore. They just want people to say, wow, look at them. It says that they loved also preferential seating or seats of honor at feasts and at the synagogue. And they wanted to be greeted formally and recognized for their reputation as teachers of the law. You know, they wanted when people, their desire was when people saw them, they go, oh, rabbi, wonderful. You know, they just, oh, yes, that's me. Thank you. Thank you. They just, cra- they just craved that. It was all about appearance and reputation for these guys. And Jesus is calling them out. Now the crowd, now, now Jesus tells the crowd, he wants to let them say, okay, this is what they are. Here's how to not be like them. Here's what I want you to do. Don't be like them. And here's how, here's how I want you to be different. We're going to look at verses 8 through 12 here. Look at verses 8 through 12. He says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, you are all brothers, and, ca- and call no man your father on earth. For you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructor, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying that to call someone rabbi or father or instructor. He's not saying that's wrong. He's not saying you can't call them these things or by these titles. What he's doing is broadly condemning this yearning for rank and for status. You know, what he's saying is don't get caught, so get caught up in uh, desiring human titles and, and like things. yes, call me this, call me that, that they'd be a distraction from focusing on Christ. People want, they didn't want people to focus on God. They wanted people to focus on them and their title. Now, some of you like to call me Pastor Rob, and that's fine. I remember when I first got here, I'd never been called that. I've been a pastor most of my life. Never been called Pastor Rob until I came to this church, and that's okay. That's fine. You can, you can call me that and kiss my ring. No, I'm kidding. You can call... Um, <laughs> You can, <laughs> you can call me, and that's fine. But I need you to know, when you, call, when you say that, when you say Pastor Rob, or when you, when you see me, you say Pastor Rob, I need you to know that that does not make me more important than anybody in this church. I am no more important than anybody else. Your head pastor, your church authority, and your primary Bible teacher is Jesus, not me. I do those things, and that's a role I take, and that's a role I've been called to do, but primarily, that's Jesus. So if you're looking at me and you call me Pastor Rob, and you think when you call me that, that that's elevating me a bit, stop it. Okay? Feel free to still call me Pastor Rob. It's fine if, you feel, if that's what you feel comfortable doing. We need to see this things, these things for the way they are, the truth, and not get to let anything distract. Remember? Anything that distracts That's what Jesus is getting at. Don't let anything distract from putting the emphasis on my Father. Don't let anything. So if titles are going to do it, don't do it. Well, Jesus goes on to focus now really on one of the the most important and really consistently reoccurring subjects in the entire New Testament. This is probably the most popular thing, subject in the whole New Testament, and it's humility. And Jesus goes right for it here. You see, the ambition of these scribes and the Pharisees was to draw attention to themselves. In telling the crowd not to be like them, Jesus is saying that the ambition of a true citizen of heaven really is to denounce status and to exalt humility. That should be our goal, is to denounce status. You've heard, you've heard uh, what's that website? It's called I Am Second. Anybody heard of that website before? You can go to a website called I Am Second. And what it is, it's all sorts of famous people going, giving their testimony. Basically, the idea that it's not about me. It's totally not, it's, it's not supposed to be about me. I'm second. He needs to be first. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. As we saw in chapter 20, true greatness in the kingdom of heaven is found in what? It's found in humbly, selflessly serving others 
for the glory of God. Not serving others for, look at how altruistic I am, like I said. No, serving others for the glory of God, not for self-recognition. Doesn't this really go against the grain in many ways of our society today? It really, really does. Where achieving and, and being recognized for status and recognition is, is seen really in many ways as a major self, uh, source of self-worth, isn't it? It's easy. Our ego wants to say, yeah, feed that, feed that sense of I am important. I am, I am you know, above some other people. I'm not as low as them, but I have a title now. You say, no. Denounce, he's saying we need to denounce that. Jesus is teaching us that humility and serving others for his glory is where true greatness, and get this, it's where true self-worth is found. You've heard those things that you want to find your, Jesus even said, you want to find yourself, give yourself away. Lose yourself in me. And the self-worth just comes because it's not based on our performance anymore. Okay? This goes against the grain of our society. So, okay, so having warned now the disciples to avoid these guys, avoid the hypocrisy of these leaders, Jesus now turns to these guys, okay? Now it's their turn to get it right at them. They've been getting it, but now right at them. And he's going to begin pronouncing these judgments on some of the very specific actions of theirs, okay? And each one of these begins with the phrase, woe to you, okay? Some of you heard this, the seven woes. Okay, these things are woe to you, which really is a declaration of divine judgment that's being pronounced on these sinful men who absolutely refuse to turn from their evil ways. He's not just saying, listen, you made mistakes. I know where your heart is. He knows where their heart is. So it's judgment time. He's going to let them know, okay? Remember, these guys were supposed to know God and to help others to know God and to follow in his ways, yet instead they were modeling a religion that was rooted totally in pride rather than in pure worship as God. Now, before we jump into these seven woes that we're just going to briefly touch here, before we look at these um, seven woes of judgment from Jesus uh, to these religious leaders, I really believe that it's really important that as we look at things like this, that we not see them as words spoken only to these hypocritical and arrogant group of men. I think it's easy to do that a lot of times when we see stuff like this in the Bible. It's really important that we see these words, and as you read them, as written to us as well. You see, whenever we see words warning of judgment or, warn, or any, any kind of warning that God is giving or judgment that Jesus is talking about in God's words, it's important that we just don't see them as relating to someone else, assuming that, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I'm, I didn't do that. So, okay, skip over that. Read that real fast. No. He said we, what we need to do whenever we see warnings and we see judgment, we need to see these as words that can help us to better understand what it truly means to live as a citizen of heaven. Make sense? Not just say, that does, that's not me. But we need to see those as how can this help me truly live as a follower of Jesus. So let's look at the first. We're going to take them in groups. Let's look at the first two woes in uh, verses 13 to 15. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I'm sure they loved it for that. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when, you become, when, they become, when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. I'm sure he got no invitation to lunch that day after saying something like that. See, in these first two woes, Jesus accused the religious leaders of actually, believe it or not, keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven. Because of their hypocrisy, people were actually not getting into the kingdom. They weren't hearing the right message at all. We, see, we even see here that even in their well-intentioned zeal to acquire converts, because of their hypocrisy, they're actually creating, what he says, enemies to the kingdom of heaven, just like them. They're creating apostles, they're creating followers, all right, but followers to their way of following God, 
which is completely hypocritical, which Jesus says here. You see, when there's incongruence or inconsistency between what we say we believe and how we live it out, this is important. When there's incongruency in there, we got to know that there is a danger of actually alienating people from the gospel. Does that make sense? When we say, I believe this, or this is something I'm committed to, and then our lifestyle, either completely or in some way, is incongruent with that, oh man, the world's going to eat that up. You you hypocrite. So that's why he's saying, they're doing these things, he's saying it's sober. Now obviously we're not perfect and we know that we have a standard that we're trying to live up to, but only by the grace of God can we. But he's saying, be careful, because remember, true godliness, remember we said this, is determined by what we do, not just by what we say. All right, second set of woes has to do with really their distorted perspective of religion. They, they totally don't get it right, okay? This, found in, this is a long chunk we're going to look at here, verses 16 to 25. And by the way, there's going to be things that at first glance when you read them, even me, when I looked at these in the first time, I went, huh? A lot of the Bible's that way. That's why we teach verse by verse through the Bible, because we want to understand what these things are talking about, even though I'm not going to be able to get in deep as I'd like to with, with some of these. Okay, so here we go. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold. So they're saying, listen, if you swear by the, by the gold in the temple, if you swear by the gold in the temple, ooh, that's a binding, that's a binding, you said, you, but the temple, no, it's not as big a deal. So see what they were doing? They were trying to say, you can swear by something, and kind of, it wasn't really that big of a promise. So they're just getting things tweaked. Verse 18, and they say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anybody swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. See what they're doing? They're, it's getting crazy. They're saying, listen, if you swear by the altar that where you put your sacrifice, you know, don't worry about it. It doesn't mean much. But if you swear by that sacrifice that you make, you see what they're doing? They're making all these weird things. Like if you swear by this, that's a, that, that you got to keep your word. If you don't, don't worry about it. Crazy. 21, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides. Here's a great statement. Straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Wow. Okay, let's pray. We're done. Wild, wild stuff. First of all, notice here that four times Jesus calls these religious leaders blind. Okay? And two times he calls them blind guides. Think about how worthless a blind guide is. That's crazy. My wife and I, many of you know, we went on one of those Viking river cruises earlier this year, and every day we took a tour. You know, you put those little headsets on, you know, and you stand out from the crowd, you know, tourists, tourists, whoop, whoop. And so we had these things on, and the guide, and they did a fantastic job helping, pointing out some really cool, could you imagine if our, bl- our guide would have been blind? Okay, people, what do you see? Just tell me what you see, and I'll explain it. Yeah. What? It would have been terrible. That's what God, that's what Jesus is saying about these guys. Essentially what Jesus is saying in this whole weird thing here, he's saying that, that in debating or nitpicking about which oath they really need to keep and which one that they don't, they're missing altogether the most important thing, the importance that God places on just being a person of your word. If you say you're going to do it, just do it. Okay? Just be a man of your word or a woman of your word. He's, sim- he's simply saying that when, you, when we give our word, really, anytime you say, I'm going to do something, you need to be looking at it as if you said, I'm going to do it, God. It's as if you made that promise to God. I, mean, I know we don't like to say, you know, I swear to God. You know how people go, I swear to God. Why do people say, I swear to God? Because they can't think of anything bigger to swear to, right? If I swear to God, oh, I'm definitely going to do that. Well, what he's saying here, and even though we take that as trite, what he's saying here is when you, make a, when you give your word, 
Make it as if you're saying, in the right way, I swear to God. I make a promise to God that I'm going to be a man or a woman of my word. But these guys were looking for every opportunity to legitimately get out of, hey, I only, I only, swore, by the te- I only swore by the temple. I didn't swear by the gold in the temple. What? So you see what he's getting at here? He's just exposing their hypocrisy like crazy. So in addition to the importance now of honoring our God-promised word, Jesus again addresses their fervor of adhering to the letter of the law while neglecting the more important spirit of the law. I mean, here's these guys. He talks about tithing. These guys made a big deal out of tithing, you know, giving the first 10% of their income, of their crops. They made to the point where they tithe that says mint and... Uh, cumin and dill. Basically, they were tithing this little tiny little bit of kitchen spice that they were getting just to make sure. So they were going, really, they were going overboard, but just in a very, very legalistic way. They made a big deal, but they were totally neglecting the more important things like having, treating people with justice and with compassion and being trustworthy people. Okay, Jesus is probably, when he says this, is thinking about the words of the prophet Micah. Many of you know this verse, Micah 6, 8, that says, He has told you, O man, what is good. Here's what's good. Here's what is good in God's sight. Okay, and what the Lord requires, if we're going to say we're a follower of Jesus, that we do justice, that we love kindness, and we walk humbly with our God. I don't see one thing in there that says, you got to do this, this amount of time. you got to tie this amount of money. You've got to make sure you spend this much of time reading your Bible. You gotta, so then, you, then you got it right. Those things are all good. Jesus says, give your tithe. Do that. Go ahead and tithe. That's the right thing to do. But don't do so at the neglect of the bigger issues. And it's a weird statement. He says, really, it's like straining out a gnat. They would strain their water or their wine through a little... Um, I don't know what they would do it through to get the, the, the gnat, because the gnat was considered unclean, ceremonial unclean. So they would strain that so it wouldn't get in their water. So he's using this crazy illustration. You're willing to do that, but in a sense, what you're doing is a camel. They're unclean also. You're just swallowing them whole. See how Jesus uses these, these crazy examples to get people to realize how off base they are. You're just crazy in your, in your thinking, Okay. He's saying, what he's saying is you need to see it differently. Here's the thing. Is it possible that we sometimes prioritize religious activity while neglecting kind of some weightier or the more important things like seeking justice, seeking justice for people, for being caring and compassionate towards others in the name of Jesus. Do we sometimes do that? Think about how sometimes we, oh, I, gave, I gave my money to the fire victims. It's all good. But I don't want to really care about them that much. I'll give money though. You know, I attend church regularly. I really do. But like we talked about last week. But you know what? That guy, that guy, I just really, I, I, I can't. He's never coming in my house. I'm never going to talk to him again. Really? Or I set time aside. I've worked really hard to set time aside to have a quiet time on a regular basis. I really work hard at that. But when we see people that are hurting, we see people that don't know Jesus, we see people that are in need, that are being treated unjustly, that just need to have a compassionate touch, Jesus is saying, you're missing it. You're completely missing the point here. Do those things. Do your quiet time. Spend time in the Word, (laughs) but act out too. Do what that Word is teaching you, okay? Okay, third set of woes have to do with the contrast between our inward and outward purity, okay? The contrast between inward and outward purity. Look at verses 25 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I think they're getting it. Um, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, Pharisees were really well known for uh, being really concerned with ritual and ceremonial cleanliness, especially when it came to bowls and plates, and definitely not touching a grave or de- uh, you know or anything like that that would make them ceremonially unclean. So Jesus give, uses this inside and outside of the cups and the bowls and of the tombs as a metaphor for the inside and the outside of people. He's saying that these religious leaders put an emphasis on appearing on outward. They look really, really good. Their expression of they look good, they look righteous, they look holy, they look godly on the outside. Yet they're actually filled inside with greed, with hypocrisy, and lack self, they lack self-control due purely to being simply a rule keeper. I want to, this just came to my head just now. If you grew up in church at all, or around Christianity at all, that was very legalistic. I hope you're hearing the Spirit of God today in Jesus's words, that this is not, it's not about keeping the rules. It's not about being, making sure I do all this and I don't do that. Because the reality is, as we learn to love Jesus and let him love us, we can't help but want to be righteous in our lifestyle. We can't help but want to please him with what we watch, what we listen to, what we say, how we think. But we, don't we get the, court, the, the uh, cart before the horse so often? Okay, I need to get right with God, so I need to stop this. I need to stop this. I need to stop this. I need to start doing this. I need to start doing this. Isn't that the way we often go sometimes? It's backwards. It's backwards. Jesus is saying, come to me first. Just come to me. So those of you who kind of grew up in a legalistic, I really hope, legalistic background or church or something like that, I really hope you're hearing today that Jesus wants you to take upon him what is easy and what is light. Not he's saying that being a Christian is easy, but his requirements for righteousness, his requirements for being seen godly are easy because we trust him to help us to be that. Okay. Don't want to go too far into another sermon. Okay. So Jesus tells them what's inside of a person, what is inside of a person, when it's clean, when our heart is pure, when we have a pure heart, then when that's what happens, when we have a desire to really truly please God in all areas of life, that's what will determine what comes out of us. He's saying, when you desire to love me, when you desire to walk humbly with me, when you desire to be who I want you to be, the desire, if that's what you desire... Seek me out, then what's going to start happening coming out, what's going to ooze out of you is going to be clean and good stuff. For me, I can catch myself, like when I do something, like I stub my toe, or I hit myself, I hurt myself, or something really frustrating happens. For me, a good indicator of where I am uh, doing spiritually is what comes out of my mouth when that happens. Yeah, my wife just went, ah, uh, <laughs> Because that, uh, that'll tell me. Sometimes if I go, wow, I really overreacted. That gives me, that gives me a sense of, whoa, this is, what, this is what's going on inside of me. It has nothing to do with what just happened, my toe breaking or whatever happened. Just that it has to do with what's going on in here. I need to get right with Jesus in here. I need to let him love me. I need to spend some time with him. That's what he's saying here. All right. So, final one here. The final woe that Jesus talks um, about here is in verse 29, another long one here, is really their complicity um, to murder. Actually, I forgot to, one, let me put that verse up there. Proverbs 4, 23 has to do with everything I said here. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Isn't that a great truth? This is what he's talking about here. Guard your heart. It's all what's going on in here. Guard your heart. Because everything flows out of them here, okay? See, Jesus is concerned with the conformity of the inward reality with the outward appearance that we have. They need to match. The warning here is that we need to watch that without the out for keeping outward appearances, yet neglecting inward holiness, okay? And this is only be done as we surrender regularly to Jesus. Okay, final woe, verses 29 to 36. And he's really going to be talking, this is heavy stuff, this last one. This is really, he's going to be talking about complicity in their murder of God's messengers. And this must have just gone, what? 
to them? Here he says, he goes, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. Making friends, Jesus again. You serpents, brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send the prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous, Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all things will come upon this generation. How? going for what Jesus is saying here, what he's doing is he's linking these religious leaders with with the religious leaders throughout all time who rejected and killed God's messengers. Okay? After all, these guys have the exact same hard heart that they, that those guys did. The same heart that their forefathers had. And we're going to see that history is going to repeat itself here because pretty soon, Jesus' followers are, by the, are going to be start being persecuted by the religious leaders. They're going to start being killed by the religious, religious leaders. He, in just a couple days, is going to be murdered because of the religious leaders. So he's tying them all together, and he says that the results of all this is going to be horrific judgment, not only for them, but for all of Jerusalem and ultimately all of Israel. Let me ask you, is it possible, is it possible that you and I are just like these guys when we choose to be disobedient? Or when we choose to be self-willed, is it possible that at times the things, when things are going sideways in our life and things are not happening or going really bad, could it be sometimes that our lack of passion for God, all these things are a direct result of our disobedience? I'm not saying that just because things go wrong, we're being disobedient, but sometimes God is spanking us because he loves us like we do with our children saying, you don't want to read the Bible. It's boring. You don't want to be who you want to be. You just don't. Christianity tried that, done that. A lot of times that attitude is coming from the fact that we have been disobedient. We have neglected God. That's what he's saying here. He's linking them to the people that did the very things to the Old Testament prophets. Disobedience. There's a high price for that sometimes. Let's look at the last. Let's finish up here. We've got to wrap this up. Look what Jesus says about this in the last two verses, 37 and 39. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now he's talking to everybody. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we see here that Jesus, it's not that Jesus wants to have these people experience judgment. That's not what he wants for them. He doesn't want to go, see what you did now, go pay for it. That's not his heart. That's not his heart at all. He actually laments the judgment that's going to come. He desires to offer them protection, care, and security like a hen. I live around a whole bunch of hens, thanks to David Gross. Okay? All these hens, these chickens, and all these And I watch a couple of these hens are literally what we would call these brooding hens. And they are just like uh, uh, watching over their, their, their little chicks. I remember one time I, was, I saw them walking and the little ones could get through the fence and just be on their own when they were really little. And I remember I was watching them and the two hen, mother hens were like pacing back and forth. Like, Guys, get back in here. <laughs> Come back in here. You know, they, were like, they wanted to protect them. They wanted to hold them. They wanted to keep them safe. They wanted to love them. That's what Jesus is saying. This is what I want to do. This is what I want our relationship to be like, that I hold you and I protect you from all that is out there and I show you how loved you are. Now, not only, not only is the temple going to be destroyed there, because he says that judgment they will receive is a choice that they've made. And he says that that's what's going to happen. The temple's going to be destroyed, and we see that's going to happen in 70 AD. That's coming up. But the entire city is going to be destroyed 
in 70 AD. The very symbol of Israel's faith is going to be destroyed. You see, Jesus longs to gather you and I, each one of us, up and provide us that care and that protection and security. Yet what he's saying is there are ultimately consequences for rejecting him, for disobeying him. There are consequences. I don't know what those will be. Different for everybody. But there are consequences for it. Well, not only with the temple, everything is going to be destroyed. What, this, what Jesus tells them is there's, a, there's judgment is coming. And then he's done. Look what it says. It says, with that, Jesus tells them, really, the next time I'm going to reveal myself to you is when I come back again. And you're going to know exactly who I am. You know exactly who I am. When I come back again the next time, you're going to see me in all my glory, basically, he's saying. That's the next time I'll reveal myself to you. So, gone way over. What are we to take away from this? What's our takeaway from this chapter that's filled with condemnation for arrogant and hypocritical religious leaders? What do we get? What do we take from this? Remember that I said that it's very important that you and I not see these words as spoken to somebody else, but written to us to help us to better understand what it truly means to be a citizen of heaven. You see, it's important for us not to fool ourselves into believing that just because we engage in religious activity that we are actually maturing in our faith. Did you hear me? Never assume just because you're engaging in some kind of religious activity, Christian activity, something that you know you should be doing, that that is going to equal maturing in your faith. These were religious, because you remember, these guys were absolutely sincere. They were zealous. They were devoted. They were all in, 110%. You might be saying, I'm in 110% myself. I am all in. That does not guarantee that you're growing and maturing in your faith if it has become just things that you do, because this is what I was told I'm supposed to do. This is what I think I'm supposed to do to earn God's favor. So how can we make sure that our actions are speaking louder than our words and therefore showing that we truly are living by faith? That we're simply not just being rule followers or even hypocrites who preach one thing yet practice another. How do we do that? Really, there's not a formula. How we do that is simply daily humbling ourselves and repenting of our pride, of our self-righteousness, and allowing Jesus to change us from the inside as we trust his perfect love for us. I hope you heard me there. I hope you heard that. Humbling ourselves, repenting of our pride and self-righteousness, because you know what? Every one of you and me are full of pride and self-righteousness. That's who we are. That's how we're made. So we need to come to him asking to be forgiven for that, to repent. You know what repent, you know what to repent means? You were going this way, you go start going this way. And not just in your actions, but in here, in our heart of hearts. Saying, God, I don't want that anymore. I don't want to be lukewarm or I don't want to be just playing games anymore. I don't want to play games. I truly want more of you, God. I want more of you. I know this is not the way I want to go. I want to go this way. That is what repentance is. That way is wrong. I know it. I want to go this way. I really want to go. And then we do this by allowing the changes that God does in our heart to impact everything that we say and do. Everything. Because remember, after all, true godliness, like I said, is determined by what we do not just by what we say. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for how incredibly sharp it is and how it does do incredible surgery and work on our hearts. And Father, I don't pray this morning for all of us. I want to pray especially that we don't just close this time out by saying, oh, good, good words, Hope that hope I can measure up to that. But God, I pray that right now that we would allow your spirit to do work. And I want to do that with everybody. If everybody, just keep your eyes, just keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed. 
I want to give us a minute. I know we went a little bit long, but I want to give us, I want to give us a little bit of time to do some, some personal work, okay? To do some work on ourselves. This whole idea of coming humbly before God. I want you to do that right now. Come humbly before God, repenting of any pride, self-righteousness, any things we've talked about. Has there been a, a lack of sympathy for others? Has there been a, an over amount of concern about appearance and reputation? Do you need to denounce status and, and seek more to exalt humility in your life? Do you need to tell him about some hypocrisy in your life that possibly could come to keeping people even out of the kingdom? Confess prioritizing religious activity while not neglecting justice, kindness, compassion. Any way that you might have been like a Pharisee. Tell him right now. Just confess it. Let him love you. Tell yourself, I accept your forgiveness, Jesus. Tell yourself, as hard as it is, is I, I accept your unconditional love for me. Thank him that even when we're, you're a hypocrite, hypocritical. He's loving. He's kind. And desires to pick you up. Let you know how he loves you. He loves you. Tell him that what kind of follower you want to be. you guys stand let's sing this again